Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Have you ever heard that phrase? Or maybe you can finish it off for me. If at first you don't succeed... Try again. Yes, that's kind of a theme here that we're going to be looking at. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Luke chapter 9. Looking at this, we have been looking at Luke for almost a year and a half now. We are in our 60th message of Luke, believe it or not, and we're almost to chapter 10. Let me ask you this. Have any of you ever experienced a public failure? A failure that was public, you, 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 you fell down, you tripped, or some type of thing at work where everyone noticed you did it. I'm sure many of us have. It's never fun. One newspaper had an interesting article with the headline, Psychic Fighter is no match for actual fighter. Psychic Fighter is no match for an actual fighter. Yangi Rukan, and I'm not going to say his name again because I just butchered it, is a Japanese fighter who claims to be an expert in the art of kayai, or psychic fighting. His technique allegedly allows him to defeat his opponents without even touching them, using the psychic power of chi rather than more traditional power of punching dudes in the face. A video of him is in action against his students shows the Kiai style relies on casual waving your hands through the air while your disciples take stage dives that makes extras from direct-to-DV Chuck Norris movies look like uh, uh, Laurence Olivier. If we saw this out of context, <clears throat> you and I would assume that it was bad anime, anime cosplay. You would think that his antics are a scam to trick gullible wimps into forking all money for DVDs, but depressingly, he appears himself to be firmly convinced about his own abilities of just waving his arms and knocking people all over the place. One day, he made a $5,000 bet with a MMA fighter that he could defeat him with just his psychic ability. Now, we can assume that his students shifted uncomfortably in their seats as he laid out the challenge. Because up to this point, they had all been pretending to get knocked out by his invisible moves to make a crazy old guy feel good about himself. And if you watch closely to this video, and you can see it on YouTube, you can see the exact moment that the professional fighter realizes that this man is a fake. After Rukon slaps the air a couple of times, eliciting oohs and ahs from the crowd and absolutely nothing else, the fighter drops his already casual guard and goes to town, overwhelming this poor psychic shield with a mystical arc of actual kicks to the face. There's something about actual kicks to the face that kind of just wake you up. After Rukon recovers... The fighter, the MMA fighter, seems very hesitant to continue at this point, realizing that he's essentially just beating up an old man. But the Japanese fighter insists, perhaps hoping to salvage at least a little dignity with his psychic abilities. Moments later, the video ends with him writhing on the ground in a fetal position, having learned an important lesson in his most brutal way possible. 
It could have been much worse. He could have tried to use his skills on a mugger. Public failure, that is a big one. Last week we mentioned how Luke has been masterly weaving the narrative of his eyewitness accounts to give his readers certainty and confidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. Now, after 18 months of Jesus' public ministry, Yahweh is going to get the final word here. After all of the considerations, the concerns, the claims and calls for the certification of the identity of Jesus, the basis of his authority and the source of his power from religious leaders, the crowds, even John the Baptist and Herod, we finally come to the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry with the confession of his disciples that Jesus is the Christ and the confirmation of Yahweh that Jesus indeed is indeed his son, the chosen one. That's where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9 today. As we go into today's passage, Luke records the events that happen immediately after Jesus and his three disciples come down from that mountaintop experience. As they are confronted with a public display of failure of the nine disciples that had remained behind. As usual, we're going to read Jesus will quickly rectify the situation and use their failure, their public failure, as a teaching lesson to prepare them for the time when then he will no longer will be, will be physically present with them here on the earth. So with that, let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 9. Let's start with verse 37 as we read a portion of this. Again, bring your Bibles with you so you can take notes. Again, if you do not have one, let me know. I'd love to get one for you. Luke writes, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seized him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shudder and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Father, we pray that you be with us as we come to your word this morning. <clears throat> Give us Words of wisdom. Thank you for your words of clarity, revealing yourself to us. And just be with us as again, we look at familiar stories. Uh, we see once again, Jesus is healing. There's no surprise there. But Father, help us to understand that there's, this is here for an important reason. And one day we'll stand and give account of, of how we listened and how we responded to your word this morning. So I pray, pray that the Spirit will begin pre preparing our hearts to receive the word with gladness and respond to the Holy Spirit's promptings. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to give you several observations here. And the first observation concerns the plea of the Father and the plight of the Son. So the first thing that you're going to see here is the, 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 plea, the plea of this Father and the plight of the Son. As Jesus finds the remaining disciples uh, in trouble, as he, Peter, James, and John return from this mountaintop experience of the transfiguration, the remaining nine disciples find themselves in a quandary. A man comes seeking Jesus to heal his son from a demon. However, with Jesus gone, he is left with the B team, just these nine remaining men. Now, the disciples, now as you and I read this, we got to remember, the disciples are full of confidence here, right? Uh, they've had some past victories and success in casting out demons uh, and uh, many times and have done so. 
But now they do it only to find themselves publicly humiliated when they fail to cast this demon out. Mark's gospel makes note that the scribes were in town watching this. Remember, these were some of the religious leaders who would write the law and they were like lawyers. And they were in there and watching this very public humiliation. And the failure of the disciples to cast this man out to, or this demon out and to heal this young man is probably an unwelcome surprise to everyone in that crowd. They were there to see a, a miracle, except the scribes, the religious leaders, those opposed to Jesus' ministry. They were probably gloating over the failure of the disciples. And don't you feel that way sometimes, whether it's at work or at home, or in a game, that there's always someone waiting for you to fail? You ever feel like that? And many times it seems like many times as you're doing something, you have that in mind. I remember this one time. I, I don't know what it was, but I had this, I won't call him a friend, quaint guy I went to school with. And the thing is, is he's kind of the, the man that kind of teach me how to play basketball, how to shoot. He was a pretty good basketball player. He, he, he thought he was all that. He probably really wasn't. I was just young at the time. But I remember as I got older and he graduated and I started playing basketball with the team and stuff like that. Anytime he would come back and we would play a pickup game or some type of thing like that, anytime I shoot, he would say brick. Or, or he, he only did it to me. And I found myself that anytime I had the ball, guess what I started to do? I started to second guess myself whenever he played. When he wasn't on the court, there was no problem. But if he was on the court or if he was in watching, I struggled with him doing that because it was always in my mind. And so you and I, sometimes we struggle in life because we know that there are people in our lives that expect us to fail, right? It, it could be a spouse, it could be a parent, it could be our children, it could be a boss, it could be a coworker, someone who's just looking to get it in and to give it to you. And that makes the humiliation or our failure even more humiliating, doesn't it? And in this case, this is what we see here. It's not fun having a public failure. It's not fun blowing the game in front of everyone, you know. Most likely you've had nightmares about such things, right? We talk about, oh, do you ever had the nightmare where you go to school and you realize you have no pants on? Why is that such a common one? I do not know. But we have those things. Oh, I, I don't, and many times there are things that you and I don't even attempt to do because in our mind, I will fail. What would happen if I fail? The disciples are living this nightmare in real time in front of a large audience. Surely the scribes were using this very public failure and humiliation to cast doubt on not only their ability, but that of Jesus, their master. Were not these men of disciples of Jesus, you might hear? Had they not been given authority to cast out demons? Had they not said that they were able to? See, they are impotent. They have no, no power, and nor does their master. Might have, might have been some of, of the scorn was heaped upon them. The crowd who were so anxious to witness a miracle were disappointed and may even joined in and jeering them after seeing their failure. The poor father and son were probably dejected and demoralized at this lack of healing. The scribes were delighted at this turn of events. Now the anguish of the father, the plea of the father is evident as he pleads for the help for his son who is suffering from a continuous demonic harassment that manifested itself 
in physical torment. Now, the young man's physical ailments are similar to what you and I know now today as epilepsy. But this is something much more than just some type of physical ailment. Look again at verse 39 with me. And behold, he says, a spirit seizes him. And suddenly my son cries out. It convulses him so that he fooms at the mouth and it shatters him and will hardly leave him alone. Now as a physician himself, Luke recognizes that this is no ordinary instance of some type of medical malady. This condition is much more of a supernatural causation than a natural one. This is not the railings of some superstitious man, but one that understands that his son's condition is beyond human help. He had probably spent some money in trying to heal his son. This poor man, as you and I come to this, is feeling helpless to alleviate his son's suffering and is hopeless in finding a cure for his condition. I don't know if you've been there. I know some of you, and some of you have been to this helpless and hopeless situation where there doesn't seem to be any type of answer. This is a demoralizing condition. And so let's not read so quickly through this and forget that these are real men and and a real young man who is suffering. Many times we forget that. We think of scripture almost like a, we read it like a book of fiction. But this is a, a real man who has a real son who is suffering and he has no answers. As a parent, you can understand this. That is, until he hears that Jesus is coming down and his disciples are nearby. Now the plea of the father also entails another issue that you and I may not consider in our context in that he says this is his only child. He makes a note of saying this is my only child, my only son. Now theologian Daryl Block notes that in ancient cultures boys were highly prized and only sons were especially precious and that's because the man's family heritage is at stake. The property and the name would go to the firstborn son, not to a daughter. If a man had just daughters, he he was in trouble. He's going to lose all that he has. And if he only has one son, that would bring him much joy. But if that son was to die, then where would his heritage go? This young man encapsulates his parents' whole life. It's more than likely they were too old. Or could not have any other children. If their child died, so would their family name and their legacy and all that they had worked for. Yet we also read that the father's faith persisted. I don't know if you noticed that. He didn't give up after the public failure of the disciples, after the jeering of the crowd. His faith persisted even in the midst of the disciples' failure. As soon as Jesus appears on scene, the man then cries out for Jesus to heal his son. There, there probably was a, a flicker in his heart. There's Jesus. He can do it. There's hope now. Maybe there's help for me yet. Jesus, as always, is filled with compassion. And he understands the heart-wrenching suffering of this father and this son. He understands the helplessness of the Father. He understands the failure of the disciples. 
He understands the demonic oppression and the continual harassment that comes from this broken, sin-stained world. The second observation is that the problem of the disciples, the problem of the disciples in healing this young man. Look again at verse 40. The man, as he comes to the Father, says, or to Jesus, says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They could not. Now, you'll recall that earlier in chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, that Jesus called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons, so that they may cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And it seems that they were very successful as Mark's gospel records that those nine disciples, along with Peter, James, and John, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they were successful. They, these were men who had been able to do this on their own, away from Jesus and the other ones, disciples. They had experienced and demonstrated the power of Christ in their own itinerant ministry. Yet here we read that they failed and they failed most miserably. Both Matthew and Luke's gospel notes that the disciples could not cast the demons out. While Mark's gospel remarks that they were not strong enough to cast this demon out. What's the difference here? Why could they do it before but not here? It was nine of them against one demon. And in response, Jesus' reply seems pretty harsh. Look at verse 41. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus here is not mincing any words. As he accuses them of being faithless, meaning that they were unbelieving. They were lacking trust and they were doubting as whether or not they had the ability to do so as well as they were twisted meaning they were to they were to subvert to pervert and be depraved in other words there's there's still something within them that is keeping them from doing what God has given them the power to do now I look at them I I, these aren't words of encouragement or self-motivation or building up a self-esteem to me this guy would not be a good psychologist would he I don't think you and I would go to Jesus under these conditions, right? In the, in, the, in the postmodern world. But like an umpire, Jesus is calling balls and strikes in black and white. There's no grading on the curve here. Jesus calls them as he sees them. Theologian Robert Stein writes that despite what they had seen and had done, the disciples, for some reasons, were still unbelieving of the power of Christ. That was given to them. Now, the third observation brings us to the power of Christ. The power of Christ. Luke writes that the power of God is on full display and the people are once again amazed as Yahweh works through his beloved son, his his chosen one. Look at the end of verse 41. Jesus looks at the father and says, bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. One more, one more attack, feeling he, he's going to do it one more time. But Jesus, I love that word but in the, in, in the New Testament. It's always a wonderful word. 
But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he healed the boy, no problem, and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Jesus is able to do what the disciples could not. This demon was no match for Jesus. He went one last, uh, 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 you know, what's the word I was looking for? One last display of, of the demon's uh, attack. No problem. Get out. Rebuke him. Doesn't tell us what the words, just get out. With authority and confidence, Jesus confronts the demon who makes one last fruitless endeavor to hurt the poor young man. But he's rebuked by the chosen one of God. The demon has no power to stop Jesus. And just as the legions of demons, those 2,000 demons that went into the pigs, submitted themselves to the authority of Christ, so does this hell-bound creature. He's no match for the Son of God. Now, in this miracle event that's very familiar and expected as we read it, I want to let's not overlook, there's a phrase in there, and you may want to underline your Bible. Jesus gave him back to his father. That phrase, it's a wonderful phrase. Gave him back to his father. What a wonderful testimony to the power of Christ who was able to reconcile the son back to the father. He did more than cast out a demon. He did more than heal this son. He reconciled them back together. He gave them back their dreams, their aspirations. He gave them hope once again. Not only did he give back his son his health, but he gave them back their relationship. With this one word of rebuke, Jesus gave them the help and hope they so desperately needed while restoring this family back to health along with a future. What a wonderful story that's happening in these few verses. Now the fourth observation is the passion of the Christ. The passion of Christ. After the event, Jesus and his disciples conducted an incident debrief. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of this phrase, uh, being with the fire chaplain, when we do this from time to time after a big event. An incident debrief is when, when something bad happens, a, a tragedy, some type of you know, a traffic accident, a fire or shooting or some type of thing. We bring everyone back and we do what's called, it's usually called a critical incident debrief. But in this case, we go back and we talk about it might be like a coach going out on the game plane. Hey, we're going to watch some film and see where we broke down, where our defense broke down or where our offense broke down. It might be a pitcher looking and saying, hey, what happened to my mechanics here? Or a batter looking at game film and, and saying that. Or, or, you know, just come together and say, what could we have done better? What happened? So they're, they're doing this instant debrief. Jesus, what's going on? Why couldn't we do what we have been doing? Why did we fail? Why this public humiliation? Well, read along with me in the middle of verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing. So there again, this is common. They see what Jesus does. The, those that were wit wanting to witness a miracle, they see a miracle. They're amazed. They see the power of Christ. They're marveling. Disciples are doing so. But then you see here, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 44, let these words sink into your ear. Have you ever said something like that? Listen to me, pay attention. What did, what, did, what did Yahweh just say in the previous passage? Listen to him. So now Peter, John, James, and John, their, their antenna is going up. 
Jesus says, let these, let these words sink in your ear. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Let's read that again. Listen, let these words sink in your ears. Now, here they are. Here's the key. Here's the secret. Here's what we did wrong. Here's what we need to do next time. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's it. That's the incident debrief. That's the words of encouragement. These are the, the things that Jesus said, here's what you need to remember. But look at verse 45. But they did not understand the same. And it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the same. Though they were enjoying the moment, I'm sure the disciples were still stuck with the lingering thought. Why could we not do it? Why are we experiencing such public failure after great victories over demons that not, not, not that long ago? Jesus' response to them about faithfulness and twisted generation is surely eating away at them. We, we would not define ourselves like that. If I said that you were a faithless and twisted person, would you like those words? Would those be words of encouragement to you? Would those lift you up and, and give you hope? Most likely not. You'd be frustrated and angry. They're most likely struggling like you and I would. They are filled with doubt, shame, frustration. And maybe some anger and resentment and bitterness is starting to take root in their heart. Jesus, you, you said we can do this. We were able to do it. Now, here we are and now we can't. Did you lie to us? Did you take away our power? Could you not have warned us so we wouldn't have been so publicly humiliated in front of everyone? However, Jesus doesn't let them wallow in self-pity pity, or self-drought. Doubt. I'm really having problems here. Or drown their guilt and shame. Isn't that what we do many times, though, after a failure? After we struggle, after we fall into sin, we wallow in self-pity and self-doubt. And we're drowned by guilt and shame. And we just feel like, what's the use? I give up. But yet with the authority of the Son of God, he looks them in the eye and he declares, let these words sink into your ears. Now, this should perk up, as I said before, the, the ears of Peter, James, and John as they had just witnessed Yahweh demand that as Jesus, as the chosen one, they are to listen to him. Jesus is calling them to attention and calling them to pay careful attention to his words as he's about to speak some truth to them. He wants them to listen and learn from this public failure. However, Jesus is not about to use you the usual motivational techniques that you and I have become accustomed to in our man-centered world. He doesn't make excuses for their public failure by declaring that, you know what, it was someone else's fault that you failed. Or the demon was too strong. Or the conditions weren't right. Or maybe it was just bad timing or blaming it on the father and son say they lacked faith. Many times that's what we do in our public failure. 
We blame everyone but ourselves. We're pointing fingers. It's not my fault that I fill in the blank. Adam and Eve did that. Adam, why are you hiding yourself? The woman that you gave me. See how he pointed it back, not only to the woman, but to, to, to God? And then what did, what did Eve say? Well, it wasn't me, it was, it was the serpent. Cain, as he murdered his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? You and I have to realize that public failure, failure, failing to, to, to please God, to do what God has called us to do, is not about pointing fingers at everyone else. God has something more in mind. Instead of pointing them to the worldly techniques of self-esteem, of self-motivation and self-improvement and self-identification, Jesus does something. He goes right to the arrow of the issue. He points them, listen to this, to his future betrayal that will lead to his crucifixion. Look again at verse 45. Listen to me. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of man. How does that help? How does that make me feel better? How does that help the situation at all? All those people think that I'm a failure. They think I'm a charlatan. They don't believe that I'm one of you, that I can do this. All these things that go through our minds and hearts. Or why am I even following Jesus? Why did I give up everything to follow him if I can't even do the most basic of things? Now Jesus has already notified them earlier that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and then then rise from the grave. He now reveals a new portion in this, is that he was going to be betrayed. Now, he doesn't tell me he's going to be betrayed by one of them, by a friend with a kiss, but he adds a new revelation. Not only will he be killed, suffer, be rejected, but he's also going to be betrayed. Now, to me, this seems like strange words of encouragement. How are they to take the statement? How does this help them to strengthen their faith and untwist what's twisted in their hearts? Jesus here is teaching them that he himself will undergo a very public humiliation. That'll include betrayal. Jesus is saying, listen people, I too will understand and understand exactly what's going on here. He's saying, I will be falsely accused and beaten and tortured and stripped naked and compelled to carry a beam of wood through the streets of Jerusalem to a hill called Calvary, where I will be hung to die on the cross before the whole world. I understand humiliation. We actually call the incarnation through that to Jesus' public ministry, the whole humiliation of Christ from Philippians chapter 2. Let us humble ourselves have the mind of Christ as Christ humbled himself. Instead of focusing on their failure, and here's where you and I are. Here's where you and I can't. You can imagine that Japanese uh, fighter thinking, what did I do wrong? Was my second ability just off that day? Maybe as, maybe, some of the, maybe as some of his students weren't pretending, maybe they actually felt that they were being defeated by his psychic moves. 
But instead of focusing on their failures, which we tend to do, Jesus instead is calling them to focus on his upcoming death and resurrection. Instead of confessing and repenting of their failure and responding to Jesus' words, which they should have done, instead we read there was an awkward silence. Have you ever had an awkward silence? An awkward silence is an uncomfortable pause in a conversation or presentation. It's the unpleasant nature of such silences is associated with feelings of anxiety as the participants feel pressure to speak but are unsure of what to say next. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe right now? Remember one time years ago when I first was a pastor here to make a point, I was sitting back there kind of where Gabby was and the worship team then got, got done singing. They went to sit down. And everyone sat down. But I didn't come up to the pulpit. I think I waited. I can't wait. I waited a long time. I can't remember what the point I was making. But you can feel the awkwardness coming. And an awkward silence is something that you and I don't like. You know, what, what's, that, what's, that, what's, that, uh, uh, what's that thing, uh, abhors a vacuum? What's the first one? What's that phrase? Something abhors a vacuum. Well, we all, we all abhor silence. We feel like we got to fill it. But here, they did not know how to answer Jesus. Like the old line from the old movie, Cool Hand Luke, there was a failure to communicate. They did not understand what Jesus was saying and trying to communicate about the mission of the Messiah. Simply put, Jesus informing them that, hey, if, I, if he can defeat demons, he can defeat death. And instead of uh, focusing on your humiliation, he's saying, focus on mine. Now, take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, near the end of the New Testament. In this passage, the half-brother of Jesus warns us about continuing in sin once we have been regenerated. Scripture warns us about the danger of failure, of faithfulness and twistedness in our hearts. You may say, well, I have no failures. I please God all the time. I I never disobey God. I've obeyed God perfectly from my youth. Well, in 1 John chapter 3, did I say? 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you, John writes. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he has destroyed the power of Satan over us. No one born of God, he says in verse 9, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So as you look at that, it looks like that you and I, once we're born again, that we're not going to sin. However, what does scripture also inform us? That we will sin. That we will have some failure. And many times our failure will not be private. It will be very public. We'll have a meltdown. We'll have an angry burst. We'll, 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 we'll flip someone off, blow or, you know, shoot our, toot our own horn. We'll get mad at work. 
Scripture is very clear that, clear that we will fail. We cannot please God through our works at all times. And though regenerated by the Holy Spirit with a new heart that has been redeemed, our old flesh, the sinful habits that lie deep within us, that we have been practicing for decades, still are within us and still linger. They're longing for us to come out and play. Paul himself declares in Romans 7, or chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, you'll see it here on the monitor. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Without the raising of your hands, have we not all struggled with that? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's saying there's still something within us that wants to sin. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Correct? We do that. But not the ability to carry it out. Just as disciples had the desire to cast out the demons and to look good in front of everyone, they did not have the ability at that moment to do so. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but that sin that dwells in me. So sin dwells within us. So I share all this just so I can see and share with you that all of us have failures in our lives in doing what God has called us to do. He had called those disciples to cast out demons and to heal. They could not because of their faithlessness and twistedness. You and I are called to do the things from Scripture. but We fail for the same reasons. Which leads Paul to cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't know about you, but that's my cry many times. I pray and pray that God will return soon so that I can be delivered from this presence of sin. I am tired of failing. I'm just tired of it. Come quickly, Lord. Now that's a tough statement to say because there's a lot of things I don't want to miss. But if I continue in that vein, I'll just keep putting Christ off time and time again. So what's the answer to the cry, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, it's found in Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Not that we can no longer, that we will no longer fail, but there is, a, there is an avenue for those of us that have and will. How has Christ set us free? It's simple. It's found in Colossians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you could real quickly, please. Again, this is a portion of scripture that I've asked you to highlight and underline in your Bible to memorize. It is a, it is a, it is a gospel-rich passage. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 13. He tells us how Christ has set us free. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has now made alive together with him, having forgiven all of us, all of our trespasses, all of our failures, past, present, and future are going to be forgiven 
How? By the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You've heard me say this before. In all the legal demands of where I failed, God says, I've canceled that judgment against you. No one can say, oh, well, he hasn't paid for that time he got mad. Well, he hasn't paid for that time that he yelled at his children. Well, he hasn't paid for that time that he cheated at work or at school or some other type of thing like that. Because he says those legal demands are gone. He goes and says that these he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame by triumphing. What do you see again? He's pointing us to the cross. When you and I fail, we're to be pointed back to the cross where all of this was accomplished. Our failure to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow Jesus should lead us not to self-pity, to self-destruction, or self-immobilization in our spiritual walk. And that's what happens to me. Is when I fail... When I, when I fall to sin, I, I'm, I'm paralyzed in my spiritual walk. I don't want to read God's word. I don't want to pray. I don't want to preach. I don't want to share the gospel. I don't want to do anything. And just wallow in self-pity. And tell myself, I won't do this again. I got to get better. Worried that who might find out? How might they look at it? Could it cost me my job? In my case, maybe in your case as well. Sin has consequences. Our failure to please God has consequences. But it's didn't lead us to self-pity, self-destruction, and self-immobilization or paralyzation. We're to refocus our minds, our affections, and will on the cross of Christ. Our failure serves to remind us that we are not forgiven and reconciled to God by our own obedience, by our own successes, but by the obedience and the success of Christ. So when you fail, to be honest, that's to be expected. For we're just human. Disciples were just human. Christ says, listen to my words carefully. Look to the cross. How many times have you felt powerless over sin? You seem to be growing in your Christian walk. You're defeating sin. You're growing more like Christ, only to find yourselves after some time going backwards or treading water. I'm sure many of you have. Remember, faith, as he's speaking here of faith, that they were faithless. Faith is a confident trust in the person and the promises of God. Meaning that true, effective faith comes out of a deep, personal, confident trust that expects God to work. And here's the thing. You need to expect that God is going to work in your life. That you are going to be putting off and putting on. It may be a struggle to do so. You may fail to put off anger, resentment, bitterness. You will fail at times to put on love and compassion. But in that failure, we go back to the Christ, the one who forgives us. Knowing that our acceptance by God is not based on my putting off and putting on, but on Christ putting off. Not his divinity, but putting on the incarnation of flesh. 
and becoming his man and being put on the cross. You see, sometimes our faith can be weak. Just speaking of the disciples here. Little faith in believing in God's providence. Afraid during a storm because, uh, before Jesus uh, calmed it. Peter sinking after walking on water. He didn't sink because he, he, as soon as he got in water, no, he walked on water, then began to sink. And he's the only one that got out of the boat. Or disciples worried about bringing no bread after Jesus just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, right? And seven fish, something of that nature. But faith can also be strong, thinking of those same 12 men or 11 men Power in preaching after the day of Pentecost. Boldness in preaching in front of the religious tribunals. Courage in facing death. We will have times of great weakness and times of great strength in our spiritual walk. We will experience victory and you will experience failure. You and I are guilty of failure when we as husbands do not love our wives and live with them in an understanding way. We, we, we are guilty of failure when we as wives, as wives refuse to love and to submit to their husbands. As parents, when we neglect to train up our children in the way of the Lord. As members of the church, when we don't pray, encourage, and disciple one another. As children of God, when we neglect to love all things, to bear all things, and to forgive all things. As sons of God, when we refuse to put away anger, malice, bitterness, and resentment. If you, and I are, if you and I are honest, most likely we have failed in one, if not many of these, just this week. But this is just a short list of ways that we have failed to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross daily and to follow him. One theologian summarizing another theologian on the weakness and failings that can still be present in the life of true believers. You need to understand that. You have been redeemed, but you will still fail. You are one of Christ, but there are times that we are walking outside of Christ. We are in the spirit, but we, many times we walk in the flesh. He says this. He says, Christians can be so weak that they repeatedly fall into sin. Even into gross sins like Noah, Lot, David, and Peter. They can remain in sin for a long time without feeling any remorse like David. And Saul sometimes fall back into the same sin as Peter denied the Lord three times. Abraham lied twice. Lot got drunk and sinned with both of his daughters one night after the other. He also says a regenerate person, one who is saved, can also have a very limited knowledge of the truth. Maybe they're a new believer. Some people are like children in their understanding, newborn infants, inexperienced in the word of righteousness, where they know nothing about the Holy Spirit. Peter understood nothing about Jesus' suffering, as we see here. Thus, many understand very little of the truth, not merely because of their limited understanding, but also thanks to the various prejudices. It's even possible that doubts may arise about the truth of Scripture and faith. Hence why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, let us supply what is lacking in your faith. That's the importance, the strength, by the way, of the local community. Again, and I encourage you to consider membership. It's where we come together and we agree to disciple one another, to invite each other in our lives. Something that's very uncomfortable. I don't want you to know about my failures. You don't, you don't want me to know about yours. 
However, in the Christian community, we are. For that's how we build and encourage and strengthen and and help uh, 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 redefine each other or refine each other. You and I must not come become complacent in our failure to please God. We must not think that as long as God forgives us as everything. Now here's the other side. Well, God forgives everything, so it doesn't matter if I fail or not. He's going to forgive me. The, the legal demands are, are, are met, right? He's not going to remember them anymore. There's no consequence for our, for our disobedience, for our sin, for our failure. We need, to, we need to consider four things very quickly. Number one is our inability to live our faith, to live out our faith, can cause is a cause for skeptics and haters to doubt or deny the goodness of God. That's what happened here. Let me tell you, if people at work know you're a Christian, but you have a filthy, corrupt mouth, what does that say about Christ? What does it say to your children if you say, I love my wife, but you're mean to her, you dismiss her, you ignore her, or vice versa? What does it say if you're a Christian, but yet you're living in sin and immorality? Which one speaks more, your words or your actions? Your actions do. Our prayers should be based, not not based on our own ability, but on the power and goodness of God. Father, if it's your will, heal me. Heal my mother. Heal my father. God blesses his children who are humble and simply rely on him. And we cannot accomplish the mission and mandate of Christ without constant reliance on the power of God that comes through prayer. I know I went through these quickly. If you want these later, let me know. But it's not about us. And the disciples, as they think about their failure, they contemplate their failure, the jeers and the humiliation, Christ points them back to the cross in his humiliation. That's what you and I need to do. So, when you and I fail, as we will, John tells us that, we are to admit that. What should you and I do as when we fail, when we disobey God, when we sin? Let me give you three things. It's here on the monitor. We're going to go through these quick. You know these already. Number one, confess your sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just forgive us our sins and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now this confessing is not saying, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I sin. It's saying, I agree with God that what I did was wrong and was against a holy God. If I'm angry with my wife and I yell at her, it's more than saying, yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I, I should have lost my temper. It's seeing how awful that was. That that was a sin worth Jesus dying for. It is a sin that God says that his wrath is being stored up that will send others to hell. So how you and I disobey God's word is extreme consequences. So we must confess that's agreeing with God. It's more than saying, oh, my bad. Number two, repent and turn away from sin. Repent and turn away from sin. Paul writes, as it is, I rejoice, not because you grieved, but because you were grieved into what? Repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance, that is, that leads to salvation without regret. It leads you to the cross. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Repentance is not, I'm sorry. 
my bad, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better. No, it's a turn repenting. I agree that it's wrong, and I'm turning away from that sin, and I'm turning towards the cross of Christ. It's more than saying, I'll do better next time. It's committing to doing better. It's putting away. It's putting on. Then number three, we need to pray for a greater measure of faith and repentance. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, Paul writes, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God assigns you a measure of faith. Disciples were accused of being faithless, and twisted. You and I many times, our thinking is still that way, even regenerated. So we must pray for more faith, that God may help us to trust him more each and every day. I love this prayer that I found in the Valley of Vision. Wonderful. It was actually something I read on Friday. <laughs> so I was preparing for this, and I just couldn't believe it. The prayer is called, Yet I Sin. By the way, Valley of Vision. Write that down. Valley of Vision. Uh, from time to time, you'll hear us, uh, the elders, say prayers from it. It is a great prayer book. It is a great prayer book. A great one to do devotions or to take one a week. It took me, uh, I think, over uh, six years to get through, through it. Uh, I was praying one, one prayer a week. I'm on my second reading of it now. But the writer prays this. Listen. And in here, you'll find confession repentance, and prayer for a greater measure. He writes, all these sins I mourn, lament, and for them cry pardon. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and love, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant that through the tears of repentance, I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. So when you fail, see Christ. This is the elder's promise to you. When you fail, and it comes to my knowledge, I will not see your failure. I will see you and point you to the cross. For your failure is no more different than my failure. And we point each other to the cross. Failure in this life is surety. Even for the Christian. And I'm near the end. Our journey in sanctification will be marked by great victories and strides, but also marred by stutter steps and backward hops. In all of this, we are not to be discouraged, but encouraged to look to the work of cross of Christ. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you'll see it here on the monitor. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, speaking of the flesh. They're just, they're precious, but yet, they're breakable. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Their humiliation and failures will not derail them. Always carrying in the, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus 
so that the life of Jesus may also be made manifested or be known in our bodies. For we who live are always being given back over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be made known or manifested in our mortal flesh. Even in our failures, let's point to the cross. With every head bowed and every eye closed, Landon, if you please come up, the worship team. I just want to encourage you to just take a moment and just pause to consider Scripture and what He's given us here. Then pray and respond to the Holy Spirit's work. It's time to put off, to put away, to put on those things of God, to recognize when we fail, let it not derail you, not let it paralyze you. Don't cast aspersions on others. A point straight to the cross through confession, repentance, and prayer for a greater measure of faith. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.